0: Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to April's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Cormac's got the month off this month, so I'm delighted to welcome Rodney Hooper, one half of the Dynamic Duo from RK Equity, to recap the month's news and development in the battery and battery material sectors. Just ahead of that, I'd like to thank our sponsor. Renforth Resources is developing the Victoria West Sulfide Nickel Polymetallic Project, located in Quebec, Canada. Situated within one hour's drive of the Horn Smelter, Canada's only copper and nickel smelter, the project boasts road access and nearby hydroelectric power infrastructure. The company is looking to define a maiden resource from a body with a six-kilometre strike length and has already embarked on a drilling and evaluation programme for this year. Renforth Resources is listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange with ticker RFR. So welcome, Rodney, to the Recharge podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Matt. Good to be on. We've had you a few times on our side on the Rockstock channel, so uh, good to be on your, your one.
0: And I promise not to put you on the line with any difficult questions this time.
1: <laughs> I hope so, although yeah, I mean, uh, you and I see a lot of things the same, so hopefully it's not an echo chamber here, but I think we've largely been right. So, uh, yeah, it be, um, yeah, it should be interesting to see if, uh, if anything crops up. We
0: probably uh, can't go anywhere this month without talking about Nickel First. Bit of a disaster for the LME. What's your take on it?
1: I saw uh, the note that you put out. It is. I mean, it's an interesting one, and it, it's raised some flags for some people. I guess we live in uncertain times and, you know, having invasions and so on and, and war. With foot soldiers moving in is, is sort of an out of the ordinary. Was that the right thing? I don't know, if you look post the um, the suspension, it looks to have settled down, but it raises the question, Matt, and I'm interested to hear your view is, you know, are you protecting special interests?
0: I think, I mean, it's fair to say, I don't think the LME has covered itself with glory at all in terms of of how they've dealt with this. I mean, cancelling a day's trading or the best part of a day's trading is not the ideal way to react. And I understand there are a number of lawsuits in progress on this. And it doesn't look nice and it doesn't particularly smell nice. Unfortunately for the LME, it looks like it's going to bounce back on them because if you look at the the volumes on the LME and that contract, they've dropped away quite significantly. And the Shanghai Metal Exchange has uh, seems to have inherited quite a lot of those volumes. So you do wonder what the outlook is for the London Metal Exchange as the primary metal exchange for the for the mining sector, given. That, what, uh,
1: what if they'd had something like you have in other markets where you sort of cap the moves to whatever thousand dollars in a day?
0: Yeah, well I mean they've they've applied that retroactively. They've put that rule in now for not just the nickel market, but all markets. And perhaps they they sort of should have thought about that in advance because a number of markets do have daily um, trading limits. So it's all very well to do that after the horse has bolted. But <laughs> I, I, I don't think that they really covered themselves in glory. And I think the, the imposing the daily trading limits when the price was so elevated meant it took, you know, five or six days for the price to come back to average price levels, which also didn't endear the market to traders and market participants very much.
1: I guess uh, a tricky one, we've settled now, what are we, in the sort of low to mid-30s? Yeah,
0: and and I mean, up considerably from where we were at the beginning of the year. I mean, I think we were what some, what, $20,000 a tonne at the beginning of the year. We were, at what, $25,000 a tonne before that, uh, before the invasion. And now we're at something around $35,000 a tonne. So it's quite a significant increase, even though it's not quite
1: $100,000. Your thoughts, Matt? I, I mean, I'm looking through to the, you know, we always, Howard and I always say with the RK equity, commodity shares follow commodity prices, but we haven't really seen a massive uptick in nickel. Share, com- you know, share prices.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's, it's very interesting. We are seeing a bifurcation between commodity slash material prices and equity performance really across the board. I mean, if you look at the, the bulk of the, the lithium prices, I mean, spot lithium prices have gone absolutely ballistic this year and lithium equities haven't followed them to any great extent. Um, and, and now we're seeing that in nickel as well. And it it sort of comes back to to an issue that, that you and I have, have touched on before of, you know, where the market is valuing, these prices going forward. I mean, if you look at consensus lithium prices, so for instance, what do you mean concentrate, consensus is currently pricing in what fifteen hundred dollars a ton for twenty twenty three. So, so next year on average, whereas the current spot price is, depending on which Providing. price supply you use, is between four and five thousand dollars a ton. So, do does consensus really honestly think that prices are going to go down? by more than 50% by- Yeah, the time I mean, we, when we
1: had this discussion, I think the backwardation, the implied backwardation on lithium chemical and uh, spodumene prices going out is pretty steep. I mean, you see it a lot in things like iron ore Yeah. as an inherent, you know, when, you know, but it always seems to actually last for longer. So, I mean, the equities are, are definitely- are definitely uh, pricing in something that says there's going to be a, you know, steep backwardation and a drop off in prices. And I, we've done the maths. I've seen your chart. Mine's very similar in terms of EV constrained and unconstrained sales. And I have a structural deficit to be honest, going out as far as the eye can see. So, I mean, it might not be in the same amounts as what we've had this year, but people need to bear in mind inventory levels are at zero. Um, none of the producers have, you've got, I mean, there's, is, you know, loose talk of, you know, and I raised it in some of the presentations I've done of, you know, Chinese lipidolite will brands pick up. I mean, I don't know to how much, to an extent of what they can sort of produce, but you're still talking about numbers that won't dent, you know, where I have close to a hundred thousand tons in, in deficit. So, and we've got, you know, when EV production resolves and i know it's an issue you've looked at if you look at the waiting lists and you look at how long you've got to wait for an ev i mean if you can produce it you can sell it right yeah
0: i mean waiting lists for for some makes and marks over a year in some cases to some extent that's a shortage of batteries um but to some extent the shortage of batteries is to do with the shortage of raw materials so it sort of all feeds in together and um I really don't think that the market is correctly valuing these companies. It kind of reminds me, if you will, of the beginning of the sort of commodity super cycle in the early noughties. And we had a sort of very similar situation. The futures curves were backwardating commodities because they really didn't believe in the long-term demand story. And the sell side was doing its usual of Yes, we're going to forecast uh, 2022 prices, for instance, being very strong. But then we are suggesting that prices over a two-year period will come back to our, towards our long-term price level. You know, as we learnt very strongly in the super cycle, you just can't forecast that way. When you're looking yeah. at a secular demand event, you've got to build forward plateau pricing for however long. You want to price in at, at at an elevated level, and then bring it down to your long term yes. pricing level.
1: But the, and the thing is, Matt, I think the thing for me in the lithium space for OEMs and cell manufacturers is, you know, a couple of years ago, battery grade demand was two hundred thousand tons LCE. That is now the growth per year. Yeah. So. I don't think they fundamentally understand this isn't copper or something else where you have a large existing base of producing assets that you can turn to and then say, you know, can you, can you do brownfield expansions and take it from there? This is almost ask, you know, it's asking an industry to double what was historic production on a per annum basis. And then the question of qualification, because the cathode guys are running flat out. They, they are, they, you know, they're trying to meet, you know, their contracts, and the cell guys are asking for it. So, how do you introduce new assets into the qualification process, but keep production at the levels that you need in order to meet the demand that you're currently facing? So, I think the timelines are, the perception is out of whack um, in terms of what's possible to be done, and in particular, lithium, because. You know, copper. Once you reach you know that you know that 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 grade, that standard, and with the impurities, you're done. It doesn't matter. You you yeah. can sell it. But yeah, this is something.
0: I think something the, very the qualification in lithium is something that the the wider equity market really struggles with. I, I mean, the wider equity market sees sees lithium and battery materials as commodities. They're not they're specialty chemicals. You know, it's not about hitting spec and continuing to manufacture to that spec. These companies have to pass qualification and then they have to continually pass qualification testing. And if your, you know, your production goes outside those qualification levels, then, you know, your buyer will not buy that material anymore until you get back to those Purity levels. So these are very much specialty chemicals, and I think the market is struggling to to understand and get its head around that. And particularly when it comes to startup of new projects, it takes exactly. a lot longer for new projects to come into production.
1: And then than the other standard thing,
0: commodity project.
1: And then the other thing, Matt, of course, is you know now you've got if you look at a tier one, two, and three cell producers, and how many new people are coming on stream and how you know what's the you know the yield going to be when you've got all of these new battery plants coming on so you've got new suppliers across the supply chain and um so you're likely to see a much higher cathode demand to factor in what's going to be a lower output yield from the cell guys and then (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this, this
0: issue of, of battery yield is another thing um, that I, I really you know struggle with in some of the cell-side models because they just haven't got their head around it. I mean, when a new cell factory opens up, they're struggling to get a 50% capacity yield. And even the modern cell factories that have been running for, for a long time in some of the ternary battery formulations are only running at 80 to 85% yield, which means 15% of the stuff that they produce is going to waste. And then for an early stage factory, it could be 50% of that material is going to waste. needs to be recycled, comes out of the industry for three or four months while it gets recycled, costs more to bring it back. So the industry or, or the sell side has not got its head around the impact of battery yield on demand for raw materials.
1: So it's it's the thing I put up at every presentation is, to my mind, if you look at the correlation, the, the closest correlation to what we saw in drawdown in inventories and in price moves is cathode is cathode production. Ultimately, that is where if it goes into cathode, it has to come from somewhere. Yeah, and it's either at this production inventory or in recycling. And the reality is the discrepancy between the effective gigawatt hour production at cathode level versus what is installed or even sold at battery level is now material and i think that's where the guys keep getting their numbers wrong they want to say oh well this many evs were sold and maybe there's a few recalls and you know there's your demand number which is just insane it's wrong yeah um, and this is why I I, I can't help but feel that the, the backwardation, you know, what they are implying in the prices makes no sense. Uh, and we also historically have seen nothing come online and meet spec on time.
0: Yeah. So, yes. I mean, that's that's a core consideration as well. I, I mean, literally nothing has been on time in this entire event.
1: And again, you know, and and that is even just in terms of ramping or whatever, and then the qualification. Now, I guess there's a bit more bandwidth or whatever you want to call it. You know, if you produce carbonate into China and put it into some of those, how do I put it, delicately glorified golf carts that they sell, uh, you know, that might be okay. But um, if it's going into an upper-end you know, EV. It's going to have to go through uh, through the process. So, I, I guess in the end, again, the, the other thing you know we've spoken about is fun. So, if you've you've got all that's going on in the battery supply chain and you're aware of the problems, you would expect to see enormous amounts of investments into upstream. But I keep getting see I keep seeing no cash down offtakes takes being signed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's here's an interesting number. This was a record month for Gigafactory announcements. We tracked 17 or 18 Gigafactory announcements in March. Raw material financing was down year on year. So, have a talk to that. How does that work out with regards to the uh, with regards to the industry and the supply chain issues?
1: Yeah, it doesn't we see junior you know and developing companies in the lithium space doing their own self funding in in dribs and drabs it's not bad but it's nowhere near enough for the capex which of course given inflation is starting to rise you know meaningfully so again does this favor you know companies that have a much lower capex to market cap requirements. So you look at an Atlantic lithium, it's fully funded, but it's 70 million that Piedmont would give, you know, versus a much higher market cap. So it can be built. So the DMS, you know, you look at the valuation of core and then, you know, on the nickel side, you know, we, you know, we consult to Talon. you know, they also have a much lower capex requirement in terms of producing a nickel concentrate that, you know, that Tesla is waiting for versus these, um, you know, high pressure acid lead projects that, you know, have, have big capex. So,
0: It's an interesting it's point it's, and it's, it's certainly something, you know, that has been relevant in the resources sector for a long time. If you can have a project with a bite-sized capex budget pre-production capex budget you know of less than a couple of hundred million dollars and you can start up stage one of that project and then finance the rest of it basically out of out of uh, ebitda out of cash flow then certainly that gives you an advantage as a company but it's not giving the sector any advantages because effectively you're getting smaller projects coming into production which ramp up over time. We still need huge investments in across the sector in capital, and we're just not not seeing that. I mean, to be fair to the market, it hasn't been the best market conditions for capital raisings in the first quarter. But compared to what was raised last year, which in in my view was still below what we needed to raise, we're not off to a good start. And 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 given you know, the amount of money that's flowing in and continues to flow into downstream. I mean, look at the LG Energy Solution IPO, that was $10 billion or something that's flowing into downstream. I mean, nothing of that magnitude is flowing into upstream. It's, you know, storing up huge structural issues. I mean,
1: so, so Matt, I'm sure, you know, in terms of our clients and the people we speak to, there are lots of conversations, there's unsolicited bids, there's all sorts of things going on, but the reality is, I don't know, there's a lot of due diligence taking place that's taking too long. In our opinion, you know, this is the year that I think the penny drops as to the severity of the situation and the need to actually step up and do something. But what do you think is going to jolt, you know, the downstream, buyers into stepping up?
0: Well, I mean, I think we, we've seen it to some extent this month with the offtake announcements that, that, that were announced. Um, you obviously had Northvolt with Vale, you had the, the Volkswagen announcement, which auto analysts liked, but those of us who look at ESG weren't so wild about. I think the auto producers having talked to good game for two years, have now actually started to lock in offtake. But the problem is you're locking in offtake, you're you're locking in volumes, but you're not locking in prices. So unless you start seriously making capital available to junior producers to develop new assets, you're not really helping the problem.
1: Exactly. So that's my question is, I said this on a Tesla related podcast a couple of years ago, unless you physically own the asset or have some kind of a streaming deal where you're locking your prices in, you still have a problem, but unless the backwardation is true, unless you're believing, you know, when you sign an offtake and you get a 15 to 20% discount and you believe that, oh, well, it'll be $20,000 a ton in 18 months.
0: There's no doubt in my mind that the auto producers didn't do their homework for the full battery industry two or three years ago. And if they did look upstream, they looked at upstream models produced by people who had no business producing models, I, I, I would suggest. And, you know, now it's come round to bite them on the backside. We would expect to see some sort of movement by producers. We know from talking to the juniors that that we both talked to, that a number of auto producers have engaged with junior mining companies or development companies, but we still haven't seen any application of capital on a large scale by OEMs, cell manufacturers, cathode manufacturers into the raw material industry. Now, you know, if I was running a OEM, I would be investing now. Because quite frankly, if it's my choice, I would much rather be spending $5,000 a tonne for lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide, which will be effectively the production costs, than $75,000 a tonne, which will be the market costs. And for me, it's an absolute no-brainer. If I'm a a cell producer, an OEM, I want to be paying the least I can
1: let me ask you this question, Matt. So I agree with that logic, and how it did some did some maths on his Ford Landia, or whatever it was, it, along these lines. So if you have an opex and you give that some flex room, just in case you're out, and then a capital charge, and then obviously paying into the asset, what do you think is is worth the guys on a long-term basis, on a I guess a 15-20 year project timeline? you know, if, if that number comes out to, cause bear in mind that a lot of the OEMs and I've said this always the other, the sort of financial arbitrage they have in their favor is they can secure long-term funding for a lot cheaper than a, a mine can, or yeah. a mining company. They can partially fund with debt in the low single figures when, you know, we've seen a lot of mines funding over the double digits. So What would the sort of number be where you would be happy to pull the trigger? If the all-in cost is $15,000 a ton, you think that's a no-brainer still?
0: Yeah, I mean, I genuinely do. I mean, at the end of the day, we all know that at some point, raw material prices are going to come back down. The big question is when that happens. Now, as an OEM, I've got to take the view, well, how much pain can I take over a five year basis, over a 10 year basis, potentially over a 15 year basis. And, you know, that that's the big question. I, I didn't do this sort of exercise in quite the same way as, as you guys have. I basically went in and, and looked at, for the whole industry, you know, what the additional cost would be of higher raw material prices. And it's something like, uh, and by the way, I didn't uh, assume 75 dollar per kilogram lithium, but um, it was something like $30 billion a year. It was going to cost the industry more in raw material costs. And, you know, as an auto industry, even with the auto industry, that's a big difference to to the bottom line. So, you know, for me, I genuinely believe it makes sense... It makes financial sense, it makes investment sense for OEMs to invest in raw materials assets.
1: I don't know if you've run the numbers, Matt, but you know, is there a point at which there's EV demand destruction? You know, if prices keep ratcheting up.
0: This is a, a really important question, and it comes back to what is the driver of the EV industry at the moment. And I think if the driver of the EV industry was the consumer, then yes, there is a level where we obviously get demand destruction. But the issue is that the driver of the EV industry is not the consumer directly. It's effectively governments. And basically, governments are incentivizing via either the carrot or the stick approach EV producers to or OEMs to produce more EVs. So, my gut feeling is that we will continue to see the OEMs taking on higher costs and having lower profitability going forward, and we won't necessarily see a puke point the way we would in a normal industry. You know if you look at the the sort of raw material pricing impact for these vehicles, I mean, just to give you some numbers which we did in, in this month's battery materials review, but last year the Raw materials, and for instance, the top selling EV in China, the Wuling Hongguan Mini EV, cost around $300 a vehicle. Now they're of the order of $900 a vehicle. You know, if you look at the Tesla Model 3, made in China, $1,200 a vehicle last year at spot prices, $3,500 a vehicle now. So, you know, you wonder how long. Auto producers can take this pain, and obviously, we've seen price increases announced. I should caution here, it's not just the raw material factor that we're seeing. As we see battery manufacturing, EV manufacturing going on at higher capacity utilizations, higher rates, we are seeing efficiencies of scale coming through. And you know, the auto industry backs itself to realize efficiencies of, of scale. But with these magnitudes of price increases, we must be seeing margin erosion.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, Tesla's not shy. They just hike their prices. I guess the other question, Matt, and I don't know if it's a spurious one, but if chip shortages, et cetera, are all sort of eliminated and everything is running back on stream, will we see ice volumes pick up again or be competitive again?
0: Well, I think this is a really interesting question. And for me, I worry that ICE volumes will never pick up to the same level that they have been before. And, and the reason is, I, I mean, we're moving into a structurally high inflation world, which means that we will be moving into a structurally much higher interest rate world. Now, you know, from the point of view of interest rates, um, certainly in the US certain other economies, most cars are bought on credit. So if your interest rates are higher, that's going to impact your ability to afford new cars. In most of Europe, there's a huge cost of living crisis. So energy prices are up, power prices are up, oil prices are up. There's a massive cost of living crisis underway. And I I just think that new cars are the last thing on most consumers' minds at the moment. So my gut feeling is, even if the semiconductor situation normalised, we're not going to see strong ICE sales growth over the next couple of years.
1: I think, you know, you throw in remote work, COVID and so on, that's probably even pushing that even harder.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we've probably seen peak ICE in terms of sales with the EV story coming in Stronger now. I think we will continue to see EVs gaining market share on ICEs. We'll continue to see EV sales growth, but I don't I don't expect to see growth in ICE sales to any great extent going
1: forward. Yeah, it's definitely um something to consider. Do you think with ride sharing and robo taxis and all of those good things that just the total number of cars, EV and and otherwise will, will reduce materially? I mean, I think that's a really difficult question uh, and I'm not going to sit on the
0: fence. I don't actually know the answers to that. I mean, I think ride sharing and robo taxis are popular in certain countries and certain economies and not in others. So, I think you know it could potentially have an impact. I mean, certainly, ride sharing has had an impact in countries like China. Probably less so in countries like the U.S., you know, where you don't see a lot of sort of public transportation. Everybody tends to want to drive themselves. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't genuinely know where that's going to go.
1: And then, Matt, if we just go back to the original topic, which is nickel, we're in the sort of Low to mid thirties now. Your thoughts on on the price going forward? Do you think stabilising around these levels? I was
0: supposed to be asking the questions. I genuinely think that the uh, nickel price is going to go up up from here over the next twelve to eighteen months. I'm aware that I've still got to do my last blog on on copper versus nickel. It's it's in the um, it's in the process of being written. But I do believe that if you look at the pretty strong demand for nickel out of the EV space supply is still a little bit constrained uh, we're probably not going to get as much of a, of a bump in terms of Russian supplies being cut off we're hearing increasingly that the market is still open for for Russian nickel I still believe that supply is relatively constrained and that demand is very very strong for nickel and I think the other point to make out is, is nickel is not such an industrial production cycle leveraged metal. It's much more a sort of a consumer and infrastructure uh, leveraged material compared to, to materials like, for instance, copper and steel, which are much more leveraged to the property market.
1: Yes. Okay, now I asked you that question because I didn't have a, a particular view from these levels, but uh, interesting that... Um, so. I was- Obviously, that's going to bode well if the market is happy to project out that sort of pricing that will put quite a few um, of the more marginal projects on the map, I guess.
0: Yes, I mean, I think so. I think so. And, uh, you know, I think the, the other the thing that's, that's very important on the nickel is obviously this, this two-tier market structure with regards to, to class one, class two nickel. And I think one of the things that a lot of people forget is that nickel pig iron, which is the class two nickel, mm-hmm. production of that is really power intensive. So if you've got your gas prices going up, your coal prices going up, then your cost curve in nickel pig iron is going to go up considerably, which is going to require higher nickel prices if, you, if it's going to be economic to produce that material. So I think, um, you know, that's something to really be considered. Again, H-power production of nickel, also pretty power intensive. If your energy material prices are going up, that's going to push your cost curve up, which is going to potentially push nickel prices up. Now, I think we'd be remiss this month if we didn't talk about the pretty significant announcements in the Canadian part of the supply chain. We obviously saw cathode supply announcements out of EcoPro BM and BASF. We saw some cell manufacturing announcements. Pretty exciting from the point of view of the North American sort of EV space, don't you
1: think? Absolutely. But, you know, we've been big believers in that. And if you, you know, talking of power, if you look at how blessed, you know, Quebec and, and Ontario are, in that respect, it makes a lot of sense. And also clean,
0: yeah, with the hydroelectric, carbon.
1: yeah. So it 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 really is, and you know, we think if you look, a lot of the assets are, you know, they've got good clean spodumene up there, and you know, there's also you mentioned with Beckon cores become a real hub. You've got, you know, I think Namaska looking to be there. You've got Nouveau Monde. You've now got these cathode guys, and it's a it's a, a very well established and uh, well set up region. So.
0: But it's crazy. really exciting for the ecosystem as well, isn't it? I mean, you have already quite significant graphite projects with Nouveau Monde and Northern Graphite up there. You've got obviously the nickel already in Sudbury. You've got lithium under development. Some really exciting sort of development and exploration projects up there. You've got byproduct cobalt on site, and now the you know the the, the final sort of pieces in the jigsaw, if you will, that we were waiting for was obviously the cathode cathode production and then the cell production. And you really are looking at, at probably the world's first integrated electric vehicle development area with the mines, the processing, the cell manufacturing, and the electric vehicles within... Two or three hundred miles of each other.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that's always been the, you know, the appeal, and it's in tier one jurisdiction with low carbon power. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Canada's always been a great choice. We've always felt that that is very, very compelling. You know, what we need to see now, I guess, is things like final stage permitting for critical elements and some of the others, so that you know it's it's right along. The development timeline that everything gets supported. I guess th- there's been some funding or what have you, but we think there's enormous potential and you know the right sort of place if you want the ESG profile and the political low political risk and what have you. It's it's a very compelling compelling story and we think it's going to play out really well. A lot of the smart money was going into you know development and pegging land and doing stuff in Canada you know a little while ago during yeah. the low. And now it's it's promising. Obviously, things like Nouveau Monde are far more uh, further down the line, and and they're talking. You know, they've got their two thousand uh, ton commercial plant to do the coated spherical graphite, so you know, anode ready materials. So yes, I think um, I think this could you know be uh, you know Canada's uh, big moment
0: from the point of view of uh, life cycle analyses. Um, you know, once we're able to sort of sit down probably in hopefully four or five years when the dust has settled, I think you'll find that the carbon economics for developing electric vehicles will be much more attractive with a fully integrated regional production line. Would you agree?
1: Some of the guys say that transport doesn't make, but I think but there's a lot of other benefits, I guess, as well, Matt, in terms of you know having no risk, because no there's no risk of a bottleneck or a problem along the supply chain. And that's worth its weight in gold in this market, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, as we've seen in the last two years with first of all COVID and then the the, the Ukraine situation, you know, having very extended global supply chains is increasingly becoming an issue in this, this market. And I think, you know, deglobalization of supply chains is very, very important. I and mean, Europe was an early mover on this, but they've kind of stalled a little bit in the upstream, midstream. And North America and Canada in particular has come in very rapidly and lapped Europe and and, uh, and other regions. So it's going to be really interesting to to monitor this going forward, I think.
1: All of the building blocks are there. I think, you know, now we need to see a concerted effort, I guess, across, you know, all stakeholders in terms of getting projects over the line and then, you know, fulfilling what looks to be, a, you know, a, a great opportunity for the region. And I, I think that, you know, that that will happen. And I guess the other thing is you're more likely to see commitment in, you know, in investment dollars uh, yeah. and capital raising for something that you know, you, you know is is lower risk,
0: I think you know one of the things which I don't think is, uh, or, or one of the asset classes, if you will, which I don't think is being properly valued given this this announcement or these announcements, is the sort of exploration stocks, the exploration and early stage development stocks, which are active in Canada. I mean, it really genuinely is elephant country for for nickel assets for copper assets for lithium assets for graphite assets there's some really interesting sort of early stage exploration projects at work uh, and also some you know mid-stage development assets coming through which need you know a little bit more more funding and potentially might be quite interesting investments going forward
1: yeah i would agree i I think that that's there is a lot of exciting stuff on um on the exploration side. And, and, you know, you have seen not for all, but you know, some like frontier lithium has done really well and some of the other Oz listed, but, um, with assets in Canada, but I think there's still time for improvement. And as you say, I mean, if I, if I look at it, you know, the quality of the assets and the, um, and the low impurity levels, of the assets in in Canada is, is something that I think is going, you know, it's a quality in quality out setup for um, producing battery grade materials. So it is obviously now there's a lot of people and money being spent in terms of looking at uh, exploration and early stage in Canada, but I think it, you know, it's got a some way to go to catch up to ours.
0: I think and that's fair. And I mean, you know, the valuations that the, Australian lithium explorers, for instance, to commanding compared to the, to be fair, slightly earlier stage Canadian lithium explorers, is amazing. But I think yeah, you know, there's there's lots of there's lots of potential in nickel and, and and lithium in particular. I think with some yeah,
1: I think you just need a couple to get over the line, get the permitting, get the funding, and get up and running, and then I yeah. think you're going to see the whole landscape in Canada change. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, I will say thank you very much to Rodney Hooper for your time today.
1: Good to chat, Matt.
0: So that brings us to the end of our podcast for April. I'll say thank you once again to our sponsor, Renforth Resources. Check them out on their website. They are RFR on the Canadian Securities Exchange. You can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.